Listening Dog Media. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Can you just give us a quick tour of your studio? This thing is freaking ridiculous, dude. Listen to the sounds here. So I dial it up here. Like what I do is I go here. NASA is going to call me in about five minutes and say, what the hell are you doing in Minnesota? All right, let's get this on tape. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. It's a multifaceted thing, an instinct for what people want to hear. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. I just want people to come on a little journey with me. That's what a good DJ does, basically knows when it's starting to stale a bit, and then they change it. How to DJ podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. I got a lot of crazy shit, but it's fun. It's really fun and I love it. And it keeps me out of trouble. Keeps me from carousing, angering the missus. And for this episode, a DJ from Minnesota. When I discovered dance music and hip-hop and electronic music, a light just went off in my head. A record collector. Never had money to buy records, so finally I figured out a way I could get records for free. That was it. I'm not going back. (laughs) A DJ who teamed up with Fatboy Slim. I bought that song done. He added a couple touches that took it from a 7 to a 10. Because that's Norman. He's a genius. And it's a double-edged sword, Chris. It's not a consistent thing. I'm not a consistent producer. I never claimed to be that guy. Don't get lost in your own zone to the point where you're not aware of what's happening on the dance floor. It was just intense. I mean, it was just nothing could go wrong. I could have thrown a record from across the room and it would have landed perfectly on the deck right on the moment. And just it was just nothing went wrong. It was just an amazing night. Freddie Fresh, welcome to How to DJ. Thanks for having me. Hey, Freddie. You're in Minnesota in your studio now. Can you just describe your surrounding? Yeah, I have a lot of analog instruments. I have a record label called Analog. I've always been an analog guy. I've got drum machines and modular systems and MIDI gear and pre-MIDI gear and and a lot of Eurorack, which is just a technical word for like modern components that are kind of like updated versions of vintage synthesizers and records. You've uh, always lived in Minnesota, yeah? I have. Well, I mean, I've lived in different parts of the world various times, but yeah, I've always had a home base here in Minnesota. And did you grow up in a a house full of music? No, I didn't. My dad's a professional bowler and my mom was a teacher. And so what got you into music? That's a really interesting question. I never really thought about that because it's true. In the 1970s growing up, I didn't, you know, really develop my taste for music until I'd say in the 1970s. I was into like The Cure and Pink Floyd. I was a huge Pink Floyd fan. And yes, and I had all the obscure Pink Floyd albums, you know, like Obscured by Clouds and things like that. So yeah, I was always into stuff that was off the beaten path. I wasn't really listening to the mainstream music. But then when I discovered dance music and basically like hip hop and things like that, you know, in electronic music, 
I think a light just went off in my head. Did that music come to you through radio then? There was a specialty radio show that I did start looking for stuff on the radio, but here in Minnesota, you would hear just really mainstream music. I mean, you wouldn't hear really dancey stuff. You'd hear more pop, rock and roll type music. But we had specialty shows on independent college radio stations in the 80s and late 70s that exposed me to some music. And then I ended up going to New York City in 1983 in the Bronx. And I ended up going out with a girl from the Bronx. And that's when everything just was like, oh my God, hip hop was happening. I think my first trip was 84, actually, in the Bronx. And what do you remember about that? I remember thinking I was like a kid in a candy store. I was like, this is insane. Everywhere I'm going, there's people breakdancing and this amazing music and huge boom boxes and everything. And I was just like completely floored by this whole thing. It was all Latino and Black culture. And I just really embraced that and got into that, you know, and it got to a point where I was entranced. It was a 17-hour drive from Minnesota to New York. And I'd made the trip so many times that for just for any excuse, you know, I'd be working at my dad's trophy shop and, you know, they'd yell at me about a trophy order and I'd like, that's it, I'm out of here, I'm gone. Boom, I'd go in my car and I'd drive to New York. So I actually got to the tollways. Welcome to the tollways of Ohio. And I had a dollar fifty in my pocket one time. I remember that was an interesting trip. And what were you going to clubs then when you were there? I did go to clubs, but I went to record stores mainly and I'd bring portable cassette battery operated recorders and record WBLS and WRKS. And I became absolutely enthralled with the mix programs with the Latin Rascals, Shep Nunez, all the different DJs. And it didn't take me very long to figure out that they were creating dynamic mixes and master mixes. So they were taking known songs and bringing them together. And that to me was like a whole can of worms. I had to investigate that. And I became absolutely obsessed. And I would drive even to Pennsylvania because that was the first place you would pull in the radio stations. And I would just park my car on the way to like Pennsylvania when Chuck Chillout or Marley Marl or Red Alert would come on with their radio shows and I would just record their shows. And I had a massive collection of all these tapes that I'd bring back to Minnesota. And then it just became a drug. I had to go there and get the records. And what do you think it was that you loved so much about what you were hearing? Well, it was so completely different than what was happening in the Midwest in Minnesota, for one. Two, it was kind of like I was enraptured with the culture of music, the, the pretty girls. You know, I mean, I was drawn to those kind of girls. I mean, my wife is Colombian. And I lived in Bogota off and on. Maybe in a past life, I was in this culture. I don't know. Something deep within me was just kind of awakened. I was just always gravitated towards the sound of um, this type of, you know, heavy bass, tribally. It just drew me in and captivated me on a, a very deep level that I can't really explain. But it's always been driven by that music. Always. For me, it was more of an obsession. And when did that obsession turn into a career? Well, that's the interesting thing, Chris, is I never even knew there was a career for it. See, so in the 80s, when I was doing this stuff, I didn't see it as, oh, this is something I can make money at. I saw this as I need to get this record because if I go back to Minnesota and don't get it while I'm in New York, I'm never going to get it. And then it'll be gone. And then I'll call up the record company and it won't be any more pressing. So I quickly figured out that these were limited quantity pressings on records. In that if I fell in love with a specific song on the radio, I better immediately find out what it is because I'm never going to find out in Minnesota what it is. And so I had to have like a radar always in tune with what was happening in New York City because these radio stations were like the mecca for me of all the kind of music I needed to hear. And what happened was I started DJing this music and playing it. And then I started bringing back this music to Minnesota and playing in discos in like roller skating rinks. For example, I was the, the resident of the Roller Gardens in 1985. And I made up tip sheets and I had all these records from New York. And I had a lot of the kids in the black community in the Twin Cities following me. And I had all these followers. And then I started to make some money because I was actually making $75 a night playing the, this music I love. 
And the roller rink was totally out of touch. They didn't really know what I was doing. They just knew that the people were, were skating to the music I was playing and there was a lot of people coming. And they didn't care if it was just all black kids or whatever. They didn't care. They just wanted business and I was bringing in business. And so then I got wise to the fact that, oh, wow, you know, I got a little power here. I'm bringing this New York. And so then I started marketing myself as the New York Connection. So in 85, I was Freddie Fresh, your New York connection. And I would get letterheads from the roller gardens. Interestingly, I got fired from a lot of black nightclubs in the Twin Cities that wanted to hear the Prince funk sound. And I was playing rap and they weren't ready for it. I lost my job in black clubs playing rap music. Funny. And I would send letterheads to New York's labels, Tommy Boy, Profiles, Zakia, all these different labels. And then I would convince them I was going to market their music here in the Twin Cities. I was going to be the Midwest guy who was going to break these records. And it worked. I got a lot of free promos. And that was it. When I started getting free promos, forget about it. You know, I had barely had any money. I was delivering pizzas and doing all these odd jobs. And I never had money to buy records. So, you know, finally, I figured out a way I could get records for free. That was it. <laughs> I'm not going back. And you were teaching yourself to DJ, I guess. Yeah. You have to remember, there's no culture here for DJ culture. I mean, we had a couple disco DJs. There was a gay scene here. We had a disco scene in the 70s. My first gig was in 1983 at a, at a disco. But it was just coming out of the disco phase, uh, North End Depot in St. Paul. And I did go to disco clubs when I was young because I was able to get into clubs because I had a beard. Yeah, I got to hear this music, you know. I really wasn't huge into disco so much. I was more into like when Sugar Hill came out and the electro thing blew me away, Planet Rock. Kind of the same thing that happened over there when Morgan Kahn got wind to the fact that, hey, you know, this beat's happening here. And he started doing the, you know, the compilations for electro sounds and stuff. So a lot of the same songs that you guys got through Morgan Kahn's electro sounds, I was getting the actual 12 inches of, of course, because I was getting them from the sources and I was just playing them. And I got to be known as the guy with the records. And so I was DJing in the black communities and here because a lot of the white kids here were just weren't hip to it yet or weren't feeling it. And the radio certainly wasn't on it. There was no rap music here. I used to tell people in the 80s, one day you're going to hear rap music on the radio. They'd all be, yeah, okay, whatever. That's never going to happen. And uh, you were mixing, were you? Yeah. Yeah, I was practicing my mixes because I was listening to Latin Rascals mixes on radio, on KISS. And I was like, I got to learn how to do this. So I bought two turntables, but they didn't have pitches on them at the time. And that's when I quickly realized, you know, I got to actually be able to slow one down and speed one up. So I used my fingers. And then I finally got record players with pitches on them. But I never had matching turntables that had pitches on them. And this is going to sound really stupid when I could tell you this, Chris, but in my 39-year history of DJing, I've only had a matching pair of 1,200 turntables for less than one year. Like right now, <laughs> I have a million turntables, but they're like vintage 45 turntables, and I've got a statin because they gave me it. So it's not that I'm averse to having 1,200s. It's just I was in clubs in year. I mean, look at my wall. It's all my badges. I've done you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of festivals and parties. I never. They always had turntables. Now, I did bring needles. Because I quickly realized that some of these needles are so bad that I can't even play my records. Like I was playing a festival, the Leeds and Reading Festival, and I did a couple times. And I was walking in one day when I was really at the top of my game in the 90s. I was, you know, doing really well that year and people were just ready for a big party. And I walked in there and the sound guy's like, two minutes, one minute. And I'm there like, Freddie, Freddie. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm all excited. And I go up to the turntable and I'm listening like, oh, my God, the left channel's out. I can't hear anything in my left ear. Yeah, yeah, Freddie, Freddie, one minute. I'm like, holy shit. I'm standing here. There's, yeah, you know, I'm like trying to be all positive. 30 seconds. So here I am taking the RCA cord in the back as I'm like, yeah, we're going to have a great party. And I'm putting the needle on and I'm pulling out my bag and I'm like, boom, got it. Right in time. I got so lucky because the whole left channel was just gone on the deck. Do you know what I mean? And it's like the sound people, I'm not going to go, hey, there's no sound here. 
Then you guys come and do the sound. <laughs> so I figured that out real quick that you have to carry your bag of tools with you if you really want to make something happen. So I take it you've never turned up to DJ with a MacBook? Oh, no, no, barely. I mean, I was late to the game with the... Now I'm using the RX2 Pioneer, which is just flash drives. I'm not averse to that. I mean, Serato sent me a free kit. I actually used it and I gave it to a guy who helped me remodel my basement. And he's like, dude, you got to carry this. He's, oh, you got Serato? I'm like, yeah, man, come on, let's build these walls. And we got the walls up and I just gave it to him because he was a really good friend of mine. He's actually an artist on Comslerant, German techno label. Mike Gates, he actually died recently. He was a good friend of mine. But yeah, no, I think it's amazing. I think Serato, I think the digital kit is absolutely fabulous. It's wonderful. It's just not me. I went from vinyl to CDs. That was a big deal for me. <laughs> and then I went to the, uh, when I realized that the RX2s, you could scratch and do tricks on them. I was like, I got to have that. I like my little flash drive show up. I don't want to go through customs and get stopped all the time. You got to remember, Chris, when the DJs would start traveling from the United States to Europe, if you didn't have a work permit, you were screwed. And if you weren't an A-list DJ, a lot of the promoters would try to get you through without a work permit. And so for a long time, I was, you know, oh yeah, I'm going to see my girlfriend in England, you know, and oh, well, these are just my records that I, you know, it's like, you're going back, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Fred, when did you start actually making music as opposed to playing it? Okay. I went from DJing 1982, three, four, five, six, seven. I bought a guitar foot sampling pedal in 1988 because I was doing master mixes for KMOJ Radio. It's a black community station in Minneapolis. And I wanted to do tricks like the Latin Rascals were doing. They were always my heroes, Albert and Tony. I later met Albert and stuff, talked to him and Omar Santana. I know all these guys personally now, but, and I wanted to be able to do sampling, stutter sampling. And so I was repping B-Boy Records. And remember I told you I was going back and forth from New York, getting records for free from promos. Well, I made friends with the guys at B-Boy Records in the Bronx, you know, Karras and Scott LaRock, Boogie Down Productions and those guys. When Scott got murdered in the Bronx or in New York, they wanted to do a dedication album, Man and His Music. They offered me a remix spot. Well, shit, I had two mismatched turntables and I had a bunch of really inferior gear. I mean, I didn't have enough money to buy any studio stuff back then. But I did have a guitar foot sampler, but it sampled in mono. So when you'd sample, you'd only sample in one ear. You could hear just coming from one ear. And so I had a guy modify it. I took it to this guy who knew about circuits and he made it so that you'd hear it in mono and right and mono. He summed the channel. And so that was my foot sampler. And when I started sampling acapellas with that, it sounded really cool. And I was like, wow, I got to start buying gear here. And so then I bought a DSS-1 real keyboard sampler that was my first big deal and oh man i was just in tears trying to figure that thing out i had to read manuals and I, I still have the manual here it's just it was awful it's really hard to learn stuff from scratch on your own and we didn't have the resources here so i'd call moby moby was starting out richie richie Houghton, jeff mills we'd all call each other on the phones and hey dude you know about this how do you hook up this thing here oh yeah you got to do this and blah 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 because even the people that were selling the used gear in the pawn shops in the places didn't know, especially CV Gate. CV Gate was before MIDI. So imagine the keyboards talk with MIDI, but before the keyboards had that protocol, they had to communicate these instruments. And so the only way to figure it out was trial and error, And but you'd network. So I'd call Moby or I'd call Richie or I'd call Jeff. I also used to call Joey, Joey Beltram. All of us, we would call each other. And it wasn't a thing about, you know, oh, I just made this killer track and I'm booked here. No one gave a crap about that. It was, how the hell do you hook up this drum machine? What's going on with this channel? You know, and like Jeff was really good with helping out and the underground resistance guys. And we were all networking. We were all talking to each other. And that's how we all knew each other. And where do you think you did make your first killer track? Well, that's a loaded question, isn't it? Because I do a lot of different genres of music. I mean, I make techno. I got known more for my techno long before my breaks, but I actually started with hip hop. 
because I've always loved hip hop. And so I kind of came full circle. I mean, here's the thing, Chris. I had a real tight techno following for my electronic, heavy, experimenting music. And when I started doing more breakbeat, I lost a lot of those fans. And then when I had top 40 success with Norman Cook, who followed me and who liked me then? Well, people who are following top 40. So I, I listen to top 40. Here comes this guy, Freddie Fresh. Oh, I like him. He's in top 40 land. And then I drop off the top 40 list. And what happens? They're still listening to top 40. Maybe a few people started to follow me from that. And my techno guy is like, what the hell is he doing? He's making breakbeat. He's not even a techno guy anymore. you know. But then I would come back and make an electro track or something. Oh, yeah. So my fans are just all over the place. Music is about an artistic expression. It's about today. I feel like just I'm bored. You know, I can't concentrate on anything for more than five minutes. I always get distracted. I'm going to make this track. Wow, this sounds really dope. Listen to this beat I found. Oh, I'm going to make a track with that. And then, oh, this sounds amazing. I put it on my SoundCloud page. You know, two months later, I think, shit, why did I even put that up there? And then another song I put up that I don't think is that great takes off and people are like, oh, this is a really good song. So yeah, for me, it's more about experimenting. I have all these cool instruments that I like to make sounds with. And if something calls my attention, I run with it. And it's a double-edged sword, Chris. It's not a consistent thing. I'm not a consistent producer. I never claimed to be that guy. Tell me about how you and Norman ended up getting together. Norman had been playing my records and I had been playing his records. So I was signed through Sven Vath. I was on Hard House, which got licensed to IQ in England. And so I ended up with the IQ crew and that was 16B and me and a couple other guys. And, um, because I had that presence in, in England, I had been, and plus, remember, I told you I had my analog record label. I started getting into more into electro and breakbeat stuff. I had a label for that called Butterbeat Records, which was more hip hop. Also, I ran it with a guy named Josh Virgin. He's still running it. And it was more hip hop and breakbeat. And then I had a label called Boricua, which was like a Latino label. I did. I was going to run with that. I was living in Puerto Rico at the time. Norman had been playing some of the stuff off my Boricua record, and I didn't even know that. And he was you know, a fan of some of my productions. And of course, I was a fan of his stuff. I was listening to Everybody Needs a 303 before his big albums came out. And so I think Fazia at IQ put me in touch with him. And then he invited me to play his Big Beat Boutique. And so now when I played his Big Beat Boutique was my first few gigs in England. And I didn't realize the sound that was happening, like the Fresca Nova sound, the, you know, the breakbeat sound was really kicking up steam in England. So I bought like Barry White records and hip hop, like Marley Mar Scratch and all this stuff. And the kids weren't really feeling it, but they were really being nice and welcoming and loving to me. But I was analyzing what the other DJs were playing at the Big Beat Boutique. And I was like, shit, where are you getting these records? And me being Mr. I have to know everything. I was like looking over the shoulders and where'd you get this? Oh, that's from Fresca Nova. So boom, I said, Fazi, you got to take me to Fresca Nova Records. So then I went and met Matt and Ashton and we hit it off real well. And next thing you know, I'm just, they're giving me all their records. And then I was like, okay, I got to go to this other label. Scant, where's that? So I basically got all the records from all the labels in England and I got on the promo list. And then Norman was, you know, such a loving guy. And, and one thing I love so much about Norman is, is he knows his shit. He's a real jack of all trades guy. He's good. He's funky. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because there's a lot of artists in England. Now, in retrospect, now I respect it. But back then I was like, these guys aren't making their own music. They walk into a studio and they say, oh, look at the bass on that. And there's an engineer that no one's ever going to hear his name doing everything. And they, oh, no, no, mate. I don't put a little less bass. And I'm like, this guy's like directing. And then now I get it. Okay. Yeah. He had the vision. He thought of this track and fair enough. He made it happen. But Norman doesn't say, Oh, put a little bass. Norman puts the bass. Norman grabs his 303 and, and puts it through a filter or a, you know, a meatball foot pedal and does what he has to do to get that sound. I really respect that because that's how I work. But it's also bad too, because I can't get my stuff to the sonic 
quality that a person could with an engineer, stuff like that. It was bad about a swing that, of course, was huge for you and Norman. And that got on the soundtrack to Austin Powers. Uh, what did that do for you? Oh, it got it just was a huge deal for me. A lot of people wanted to license that song for commercials. And unfortunately, I never got any of the money in the beginning because I signed the contracts with that label with no lawyer. And so, I mean, in a musical sense, it was amazing. I got a lot of notoriety. A lot of people loved it. I thought it was just a super fun track. I mean, to be fair, Chris, 95% of that track is me. And I'm proud to say that. And Norman knows that. I bought that song done to Norman. He added a couple touches that took it from a seven to a 10 because that's Norman. Like, mate, put this right here. Oh my God. Why didn't I even think of that? You know, and he's like, he's just the man. But I want to make that clear. I did that song. A lot of people think, oh, Norma did the whole song and you just came along. No, I did the whole freaking song. Everything is me except for like two or three little pieces that Norman put in. But hanging out with him was amazing. The guy's a saint. He's funky as hell. He took me around, showed me all his record shops. I stayed with him for two days. We had a blast. I mean, I love Norman. I think he's awesome. I'm probably a pain in the ass to Norman because I probably call him here and there like, Remember how I told you I'm a spur of the moment guy? Well, I tried to do this song about four years ago that I thought, hey, this is a really good song. Norman would probably like this. I'm going to send this to Norman for a remix. My wife was like, that shit's not funky. Don't send that to him. I'm like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. This is a hit right here. You know, and I was in that mood. So I sent Norman this track and he's like, Freddie, I, I don't have Ableton, the updated version. You got to update. What do I, I? So we did all the bells and whistles until we could figure it out. So then he listened. He's like, not really feeling this one, mate. Boom, that's it. Now he's never going to ever remix another one of my songs as long as I live. Because <laughs> I do love Norman. The only thing I don't like about Norman is that he said Big Beat was dead. It's not, Norman. It's alive and well. And there's people all over the world that lose their minds to it. I don't care what the tabloids say. If music is funky, it's kind of like, Chris, if I go to an art museum and I see a painting on the wall and it's watercolor, not oils, watercolor, and someone walks behind me and says, I really like that painting, but you know, that's so last year, man. Complete bullshit. If it's funky, it's funky. Period. Fred, it's time for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box here. All the questions are on 45 sleeves. I'm going to dip into the box and you say when, I'll pull one out. So I'm just supposed to look here? Uh, you just say when, I'll pull one out, trust me. Oh, I'll just say now, you mean? Yeah. Okay. Um, as in like right now? Yeah. Now. Okay. Your first question from the box is, do you prefer making music or playing it? I prefer making music. Why? Um, because I can try to push boundaries and experiment. And because, I mean, if you would ask me that 10 years ago, I'd say probably playing music. But I'm in the zone right now where I just like to make music. But it's always been kind of a 50-50 split. But playing music, watching the people dance. I mean, that's a trick right there. You've taught DJ techniques at college. Can you share three vital techniques? Don't get lost in your own zone to the point where you're not aware of what's happening on the dance floor. And that's really critical because if the people aren't feeling the vibe that you're feeling, there's no vibe. I mean, you have to see this isn't going where I want it to go. Look at this. This is going. And take the crowd in that direction because you might be a famous DJ and people are going to dance to whatever you give them because they like you so much. But at the end of the day, pretend you're behind a wall and no one's seeing you. Would they be losing their minds? You have to let people feel that music and you also have to, you know, put away the ego or whatever you have and just vibe with your crowd and read them and get off that. So, yeah, it's, it's real critical that you're analyzing what's happening as you're playing. Vibe the crowd, analyze the crowd. What else? If you were going to go from one tempo of like a hip hop tempo of like 90 or 102 per minute to, um, you know, like a house tempo of 140, because for me, I like to play a lot of different multiple genres when I'm DJing or at least take it into a couple different lands. 
be real clever and creative how you do that. You can't, you don't want to just make an awful train wreck mix. There's clever ways that you can stag songs that don't typically blend. You could put an acapella in between, you can scratch in an intro. Learn the technicalities behind how to transition from genres that traditionally wouldn't mix together. So I don't know how I would put that into words in a concise way for you, Chris, but I guess what I'm trying to say is have some technical skill behind what you're doing, because it's not all about just, you know, one tempo all night long. Unless you're a house DJ and you're only going to go 124 all night long. I lose my mind. <laughs> I asked you for three. Uh, one other technique. Um, another technique as far as DJing to keep the crowd. Don't bring too many records to a gig if you're playing vinyl. Realize there's going to be a lot of music you're never going to play. You know, try to very, very carefully think out, am I really going to play this record? This works for vinyl DJs. I mean, because I was in that position where I, I would start with so many records and I would limit it down. So get to a set and, and also remember certain songs work amazing together. So kind of design your set a little bit. Don't go completely blind. I used to do that. I used to go to gigs just blind. I'm going to play whatever. But then over time, I realized you can have an absolutely fabulous set if you put a little bit of effort into it. So yeah, put some thought into what you're going to do. Don't just wing it completely. Amazing advice, Fred. Back into the box for your third question. Stay when. Now. Wow. What is your finest moment? Musically? Yeah. Okay, my finest moment was the moment that I realized that people were losing their minds on the dance floor to something that I had actually made. I don't know what it was because I've made it hundreds and hundreds of tracks, but it was me and I made it. And I remember Norman told me that DJing is like having an orgasm and having people dance to your own music is having a multiple orgasm. I always remember that. He told me that. And it's absolutely true, Chris. When you're making people lose their minds and it's to a song that you made, it's just another level of intense satisfaction. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. Next thing I know, it's raining on the stage, Chris. I'm talking just stuff shooting up at me. And I'm like, they can't hate me. I've been here less than a minute. And you ask yourself, well, was I there to play that party? Or was I there because I got to meet this other person? That wouldn't have happened had I not been there. So it's like everything's connected. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Back into the box. Fred, say what? All right, go ahead. I don't know how big your box is, but Chris, maybe it goes to the ends of the floor and I could be sitting here for five <laughs> minutes. What should the world do with CDs? Play Frisbee with them. <laughs> do you think they're ever going to be worth anything? I think they have their place in that respect that an independent, privately made CD would be special for someone. Like if Boards of Canada had made a CD, a limited quantity, that would be very special. It would be. I'm not going to say just because of, oh, it's on a CD, it's terrible. No, yeah, it would be great. Mass-produced CDs, I'm not feeling them. They just have a stale sound to me. And on top of that, they don't have liner notes. I like to hold the actual artifact. Half the fun of holding a Bo Diddley album is the fact that it was made in 1958. You know what I mean? I'm holding it in my hand. I'm reading it. It was pressed there at chess, and it's from 1958. And it has a deep groove in it. All that stuff is a nuance that brings me back to that essence, to that era. For the most part, the uh, CDs are, are going to be worthless, right? I would guess they're probably not going to be worth any money at all unless they are a group that has a real following and they did a limited CD for their fans or something. That's my guess. Yeah, mine too. All right, back into the box for another question. Say when. Okay, now. Okay, Fred, what's been your best time ever in a DJ booth? 
and your worst? Well, I can tell you my worst because it was pretty bad. In the Millennium Party in 2000, I got booked to DJ for Torquay, Australia, 60 rock bands and 60 DJs. And what happened was is originally down the coast of Australia and they got rained out and they had to move the festival up the coast to Torquay. They canceled all the DJs except me because I was the headliner in all the rock bands. So I had to play a double gig. It was a huge gig for me. And it was going to be 25,000 people there. And I opened for Blink-182. And when I got onto the decks, I'd already had like five Heinekens because I was a little bit, I was a little bit nervous. But once I'm on the decks, I'm good. I get on the decks. Within two minutes, I saw something fly over my head. It was a chair, I think. And I'm like, holy shit, this crowd's really active. There's like 25,000 people, bouncers all around. Next thing I know, it's raining on the stage, Chris. I'm talking just stuff shooting up at me. And I'm like, they can't hate me. I've been here less than a minute. This is not normal, right? Something's weird going on. So I hear the guy behind me going, there's no sound. Well, I had monitors in front of me, so I heard sound, but the crowd had no sound because after the Violent Femmes, I think, or whoever the heck was on before me in the intermittent and sound crew left, or he doesn't need a sound guy, he's a DJ. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't want an oil massage and I didn't want any cocaine, but I would kind of like sound. That would have been nice. No sound, right? And so I'm drunk. I'm there tipsy. They're throwing shit at me. Now, to be fair, I didn't leave. I held my ground. I'm proud of myself for that. I actually have a picture of me on that stage as a bookmark for this book I'm reading because I just found that laying in the basement the other day under my washing machine or someplace. And I got those bastards back. Here's what happened. So the sound clicks on 20 minutes. It seemed like 20 minutes. It was probably like two minutes, three minutes. Boom, sound's on. They stopped throwing stuff at me. I'm pissed, angry. I finally get the crowd back. And now I'm running around getting everybody the finger, which was the stupidest thing I've ever done. But they actually were digging that. They actually were like, yeah, yeah. And I was just like, man, you bastards. You didn't give me a second. I could have rocked. You didn't even know. You're just throwing shit at me like I'm just the dork. And so, yeah, that was horrifying, harrowing. I called my English managers. Like, you can't believe this happened. He called and the promoter yelled at all the sound crew which was not a good thing because the next night I was there, they threw my monitor on the floor. They were all mad. They were doing this behind my back and stuff. And the record skipped as I was playing. And I was just like, just whatever, leave it. You know, all this darling American DJ needs all this special treatment. That was my worst gig. It was good too, but it was really harrowing. What a story. What about your best? I'd say my best gig was probably best in the, in the regards of people dancing. I played a New York sushi club night. The paint was coming off the walls. I mean, we were losing our minds. Tom Middleton was, I think I played with, it was just one of those vibes. It's like 300 people, but it was just intense. I mean, it was just, nothing could go wrong. I could have thrown a record from across the room and it would have landed perfectly on the deck right on the moment. It was just, nothing went wrong. It was just an amazing night. Great vibe, partying, we're drinking, hanging out with other guy, cool DJ guys. We're just, yeah, Freddie, do this. Oh, no attitudes, just totally, let's blast this place. I think it was a New York sushi gig was probably one of my best. What about the biggest, Fred? Well, the Torquay Australia was my biggest, 25,000 people. But I played a lot of festivals. I mean, Glastonbury was a big festival. I played that. That was huge. <laughs> I played Tea in the Park, Creamfields, Osaka, Tokyo. Um, I played a party with Bjork in Finland that was absolutely massive, but I didn't get to meet Bjork. I was a little irritated. And then when I did go to meet her, I realized that they booked my train to leave as I was DJing. I found that out. And so I ended up missing my next gig and all kinds of stuff. But I played a lot of festivals, Chris, I have. I played so many parties, I can't even believe I've done these parties. It's ridiculous. Is travel the best or worst thing about being a DJ? Travel's great if you like. I listen to a lot of chill out and ambient music. And I used to have a mini disc player and I would listen to music and travel and just to zone out. And it was fun. I had my adult daughters. They were little girls then. And that was kind of sad because I was gone a lot. 
sometimes I'd be gone for months, you know, DJing in these different places. And I was shooting back and forth from Minnesota to Puerto Rico to Europe all the time. And it, it was really fun because I got to meet a lot of cool people. The lasting things are the most important. For example, the friendships I, I cultivated are much more important. And, you know, where I am at my older age now, I look back and I think, wow, the best thing about the gig in Ultraschall in Germany when I played techno that night was some young kid who was suicidal in the corner that I sat and talked with for about 45 minutes and had beers with. I was like, wait, I was talking. Those are the weird things. It's like you find yourself in these predicaments in these places in these countries and you ask yourself, well, was I there to play that party or was I there because I got to meet this other person that wouldn't have happened had I not been there? So it's like everything's connected. And, you know, in retrospect, there's nothing more beautiful than being able to see all these different places. And I have seen a lot. I've been like 37 countries, right? 35 countries. I've been very blessed and I've had a lot of amazing adventures. Amazing. One last question from the box now, Fred. Say when. Uh, when. How does being a DJ make you feel? proud that I was able to actually make a career out of it and that I'm still doing music to this day. I mean, I still DJ and I still produce music and it's been a career that's been lasting me since 1983. And I mean, that's all I do. I don't really have a day job. Still, I don't have a day job. I sell rare records. I do do that too on the side. You're such a legend, such a great guy too, Fred. I've got one last question for you. There's some kind of non-specific catastrophic event with a caveat that you have to play the last three records on earth. What would those three records be? Um, COD in the bottle. I'd probably play that. That's always been an all-time favorite. That's a Man Parish production that not many people know about. Man Parish COD in the bottle is also uh, Raul Rodriguez. Um, I would probably play for the second one. Gosh, that's a really tough question. You're just giving me the hardest questions in the world, Chris. Um, Rendezvous by Experimental Products. That's an amazing record. It's a synth record from the 1980s. It's really good. How are you going to go up? With my last song? Yeah. Was, you know, Aphex Twin did a song that brings tears to my eyes every time I hear it. It's got some ridiculous, stupid name. He names his songs with the most ridiculous names. It's an ambient track. Rhubarb. It might be called Rhubarb. Boards of Canada, too. I'm a huge weakling for Boards of Canada. Roygbiv. Is it Roygbiv? I don't even know how to say the goddamn. Roy G. Biv? Yeah. That song is magic. And you know what the most magic thing about that song is, Chris? I was driving with the IQ crew to Glastonbury, and I was nervous when we were playing it. And Dean from IQ has the new Boards of Canada. I never even heard of them. Of course, their new album, Music of the Right to Children. You know, I, I wasn't following them from Scam. You know, I was late to the game with those guys. And Roy G. Biv comes on. And I'm like, hey, what is that, Dean? He goes, oh, it's just bad Boards of Canada. And I look out the right window, and this Stonehenge is right there in a field. It's like just there. I'm like, what is that? That's Stonehenge? Yeah, mate. That's still, I'm like, what is it doing in a field? Where's the entry signs and where's the freaking lineup and pay your ticket price here to see this? And I'm like, no, it's just sitting in a field. I'm like, what? I know. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. And it was just a magical moment. So yeah, that song for me and Aquarius on that album too, it's such an amazing album. And one of my biggest regrets is I could never speak to those guys because I always wanted to talk to all the artists that I always loved and I never got to talk to those guys. Not that anyone gives a shit, but I mean, for me, it would have been cool. <laughs> Awesome, Fred. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Chris, it's my pleasure, and I, I'm honored that you're still thinking about me after all these years. Freddie Fresh, that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.